0: So Second uh, Samuel, it's been a while since we've been in Samuel, so let me give you some context to remind you of what we've been talking about. Saul, first king of Israel, chosen by God, rejected by God for his persistent disobedience. So God calls David. David is anointed by Samuel to be the king, but he's not immediately put on the throne. Maybe about a 15-year period from when David is anointed to when he actually reigns. The beginning of that 15-year period is great. He kills Goliath. He's um, welcomed into Saul's inner circle. He marries Saul's daughter. Everything's going really well. He's successful as a military leader. He has a lot of popularity. Then Saul gets jealous and tries to kill him three times. And then David runs away uh, in order to save himself. David runs away and he spends about a decade running, living as a fugitive, either in the wilderness or in foreign lands in order to avoid Saul. First Samuel uh, closes with this massive battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. The Philistines win. They rout the Israelites. They kill Saul. They kill Jonathan, who's Saul's son, David's best friend, and two other sons of Saul. During all of that time, David is actually in a town called Ziklag, which is in Philistine territory. He's been there for 16 months, and he's basically hiding from Saul in that place. So 1 Samuel closes David's in Ziklag, he hears Israel's lost, he hears Saul's dead, he hears his best friend Jonathan is dead, Saul's other two sons are dead. So he's, here's a guy who 15 years before was anointed to be the king. Remember, he didn't apply for that job. Samuel came to his hometown and literally called him out of a field and said, this is what God has for you. He spent 15 years with that, I don't know, at various points probably feeling close and very far away. Saul is now removed, and so David is going, well, what's what's next for me? From this foreign country, what's my next move? What's the next step for me? And that's where uh, 2 Samuel 2 picks up. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of these towns of Judah, he asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, the Hinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron, in its towns. The men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. So as we've seen throughout David's life, when he comes to a crossroads, he prays, and he asks the Lord. So here's a map that you can kind of, just to help you visualize what's going on. David is down in Ziklag, that kind of yellow circle. That's actually, originally is Israelite territory, but they've lost it. So now it's Philistine territory, and he's saying, where do I go, God, and should I go back up to Judah? That's where David's from. He's from Bethlehem, that blue circle in the, that tribe of Judah, and God says, yes, go. Where should I go? To Hebron. That's that red circle. Hebron was the most prominent city in Judah at the time, strategic place. So David goes there, and when he gets there, the men of Judah, so these are his, literally this is his tribe, these are his People. They come and anoint him in Judah, in Hebron and say, You're the king of our tribe. Remember, there are 12 tribes in Israel. You're going to be the king of ours. It gets passing mentioned there in 2 Samuel. It's a huge step. Up to this point, everything for David has been preparatory, and now we see him beginning to step fully into his calling or into his destiny. It's in Hebron. It's, it's local. You're going to be the king of our people, our tribe, But it is a concrete step forward uh, for David. When David was told that it was the men from Jabesh Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to them to say, The Lord bless you for showing the kindness to to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you've done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. It's interesting. It's the only time we see any of this. Uh, David, over the next several chapters, moves fully into being the king, and this is the, one of the only times that we see him making an overt gesture towards a city. So, Jabesh Gilead's up there. It's blue. It's in the. It's in the north. And if you remember, those guys. Um, when Saul was defeated by the Philistines, they, they cut off his head and his hands and they take his body and the body of his three sons and they fasten them to a wall in Bethshan, that green city up there. And the guys from Jabesh Gilead hear about that. And so they, at great risk to themselves, overnight take this 11-mile trek, cross a river, get those bodies off the wall, take them back to their city, they burn them so they can't be desecrated any longer, and then they bury the bones. So a sign of respect, love, and loyalty. Saul had been very um, gracious to them early in his reign, and they're paying him back in some ways. And so David reaches out to them. It's interesting that he would choose to, to reach out to that city, that city which had shown such loyalty to Saul. And that may have been the reason why, is David wanted them to know, hey, I'm, I'm not your enemy. You may have thought I was an enemy, an enemy of Saul. I'm, I'm not. I wasn't. And I'm not your enemy either. You demonstrated great love and loyalty in uh, what you did for Saul. It's a great act of kindness. And I just want you to know I'm the king in Judah. They've anointed me king. And he's basically saying, do y'all want to be the first in the north to acknowledge me as king? And there's no response. We don't, we don't know what they said. It's not recorded in Scripture uh, how they responded uh, to that offer. <clears throat> Excuse me, verse eight. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner. So these names get really tough. Y'all, let's do the best we can. I'll do the best I can. You try not to laugh. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth. How about that one? son of Saul, and brought him over to, Manah, to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Ashuri, and Jezreel, those are areas, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. The tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. That's actually going to be our key verse. We're going to come back to that. The length of time David was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. So, we've got David in the south in Judah. The men of Judah have said, you're our king. And then we have Abner, Saul's cousin, commander of Saul's army, who elevates, for lack of a better word, Saul's sole remaining son. So, he's over there in that green circle up in the north, Mahanaim. And so... I we don't know exactly how those two reigns overlapped. David's seven and a half in Hebron and Ishbosheth's two in Manahain. Most people think David's sixth and seventh year, his last two years, were the two years that Ishbosheth reigned. And it took five years for Abner to kind of settle everything. He's actually the major player. Ishbosheth just seems like he's a figurehead. He doesn't do hardly anything. Abner really seems to be the one who's making things happen in the north, and it probably took him about five years to push back the Philistines so they could exercise some rule over themselves. And so Abner says, this is the son of Saul, and I'm going to make him king. Now, if you remember back in 1 Samuel 28, Saul's really scared before he goes into this last battle, and so he goes to a witch, and he says to this witch, I need to talk to Samuel, who's been dead for a while. And so the witch raises up Samuel's spirit and Saul talks to Samuel trying to get some advice and what Samuel says to him is tomorrow you're going to be dead and all of your sons are going to be dead and so what it looks like to me is Saul being Saul is hedging his bets again God has spoken to him through this prophet and rather than repenting rather than attempting on any level to get to, to to get right with the Lord to humble himself before the Lord what he says is, well, if, I, if my sons are going to die with me tomorrow, I'm going to leave this one out. Ishbosheth won't come into the battle. If Samuel's right, then I still have one guy who can take over. Now Saul knew, 1 Samuel twenty four twenty. Saul knew that David was the one God had chosen. He says to David, I know God has chosen you. To be the king, he knows that, and yet he continues to try to work around it. Again, it's just another example of the persistent rebellion, the persistent hardness in Saul's heart, and why God did have to uh, have to reject him. So we have this son who doesn't fight, most likely because Saul is basically saving him back, just in case Samuel's right, and he and his other sons die. And after five years of wrangling with the Philistines, there's enough peace for Abner to elevate. Ishbosheth to the throne. Verse 12. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool and one group on the other side. So let me we flip to that slide just so they can see. So, the map. I'm going out of order, sorry. So we've got Abner's up in the north, he's in that green circle, and that's an aggressive move. He moves down to Gibeon, that yellow circle, and he takes his army. You see how close that is to Judah, and how close that is to where David reigns. So that's an aggressive, offensive move by Abner, and he brings an army down there. And so Joab, who's David's nephew, and the commander of his army, brings his guys up ...to meet Abner in Gibeon... ...and there's a man-made reservoir there... ...and it's 37 feet across... ...so 10 or 12 yards... ...it's 12 yards across... ...and so Joab's got his guys over here... ...and then at the back of the room... ...you've got Abner has got his guys... ...there... ...can you picture that? ...and it has not been that long ago... ...that all of these guys... ...remember they're all Israelites... ...so I mean, this, is civil, this is a civil war... ...I mean this is an internal conflict... Between Israel. Some of these guys know each other. As we'll get into it, you'll see they know one another. They know who, and and so there's, you can imagine all of the tension in that encounter. And so Abner has this brilliant idea, verse 14. Then Abner said to Joab, Let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. Okay. Let them do it. That's what I think he said. I think he's like, All right. Let him do it, Joab said. So they stood up and were counted off 12 men for Benjamin in uh, Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and 12 for David. Benjamin was the tribe that Saul came from. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head, so picture this, and then thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. So the place in Gibeon was called Helkath Hazarim, which means Field of Daggers. So you got it? So I pick 12 guys, Brandon picks 12 guys, we're the old guys, we pick the young guys to go out and fight, and then they line up one-on-one, grab their heads, they're not wearing armor, dagger, stab each other, all 24 are dead. Great idea (laughs) by Abner. Don't know exactly what he was trying to accomplish, you don't see this anywhere else in the Old Testament when they battle, the closest parallel is David and Goliath where those guys are representing their armies. But even though David wins, they're still the armies still fight. So there's no indication what Abner really thought he was trying to accomplish. Maybe he was trying to limit the bloodshed and saying, hey, if our, if our 12 guys beat your 12 guys, then y'all give us the victory. And if your 12 guys beat our 12 guys, then we'll say y'all won. Maybe what he's trying to do, we don't know. Again, there's no precedent for that. Uh, In the Bible, but it doesn't, whatever he was trying to accomplish, it doesn't work. The battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David and his men. So now there's a pause in the story, and it's going to get very personal. So we've been looking at this battle of these two armies, and now it's going to zoom in really closely on two guys, and we're going to pick them up next week. It doesn't necessarily tie into what we're talking about today, but I'll just read the story because it's chronologically the way it happened. The three sons of Zeruiah were there: Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. So those are all brothers. Asahel was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and said, "Is that you, Asahel?" See, they knew each other. "It is," he answered. Then Abner said to him, "Turn aside to the right or the left. Take on one of the young men and strip him of his weapons." But Asahel would not stop chasing him. So you have the picture. So Asahel is chasing Abner. Everybody's on foot. And he's really fast. He doesn't appear to be wearing any armor. And he doesn't seem to have much in terms of weaponry. And so what Abner says, I don't know if he's being nice. I don't know if he's just saying, hey, let's fight fair. He says, you go fight somebody else and get their weapons and then come back. Right? It's don't don't fight me right now. And again, there seems to be some level, I don't know what you want to call that, compassion or justice or something in Abner that he's saying this isn't going to end well for you. You're not equipped to fight me. Again, um, Abner warned Asahel, stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? You see relationship there. But Asahel refused to give up the pursuit. This is gross. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Asahel's stomach, and the spear came out through his back. That's tough. He fell there and died on the spot. And every man stopped when he came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died. You got it? So they're running. Asahel's getting closer and closer. Abner's tried twice to say, please don't do this. He keeps chasing him. And so the, it seemed, maybe he was trying to just knock the breath out of him or something because he doesn't turn around and stab him with the point into the spear. He jabs the blunt end of the spear backwards and somehow it impales. Asahel. So it seems like he swung it pretty hard, and Asahel was running pretty fast. And so he dies. And uh, we'll pick that up next week. That does have impact on Abner and Joab's relationship. But it doesn't necessarily tie into what we're talking about today. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. Of course they did. And as the sun was setting, they came onto the hill of Ammon near Gia on the way to the wasteland of Gibeon. Then the men of Benjamin rallied behind Abner. They formed themselves into a group they took their stand on the top of the hill. So you had Israel, the Israelites are running from Joab and his guys, and now you have them all kind of forming up lines and getting ready to fight again. Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their fellow Israelites? That's an interesting statement when Abner's the one that, Came to Gibeah in the first. Came to Gibeon in the first place. He started it all, and now he's saying to Joab, "Tell your guys to stop." Joab answered, "As surely as God lives, if you had not spoken, the men would have continued pursuing them until morning." So Joab blew the trumpet. All the troops came to a halt. They no longer pursued Israel, nor did they fight anymore. All that night, Abner and his men marched through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan. Continued through the morning hours. And came to Mahaname. So they left. They just started moving at night. And they got back home the next morning. Joab stopped pursuing Abner and assembled the whole army. Besides Asahel, 19 of David's men were found missing. So that's it. And he lost 12 of them in that weird thing at the pool. So they only lost 7 guys in the fight. But David's men had killed 360 Benjamites uh, who were with Abner. They took Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb at Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men marched all night and arrive back at Hebron by daybreak. So they, they go home as well. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. We don't see any more fighting between them. This is the only uh, specific battle that we get into in 2 Samuel. But it does appear that there were more. The war lasted a long time, maybe for, both, for two years, that Ishbosheth was the king there in Monahamon over time. David's guys, that they won. God was with David. His army was victorious. Uh, Ishbosheth's army was not. David inquires of the Lord at the very beginning, Should I go up? There's no indication that anybody on the other side asks the Lord, Should Ishbosheth be the king? Who should be our king? Who should be our leader? Should we align ourselves with David? There's no indication that anybody on the other side did any of that. And that plays out over the next several years, as David's power increases. And then in chapter 5, he is actually able to become king over all of Israel. So the the line I want us to look at today, chapter 2, verse 11. The The length of time David was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. The length of time David was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. Up to this point, 1 Samuel 16 all the way through 2 Samuel 2, everything we've seen from David is preparation. God is preparing him to be the king. Uh, He's preparing his heart. He's teaching him how to trust him and depend on him at a deeper level. He's giving him skills. He's learning how to lead people. Remember, there's 600 men who come to David who are disgruntled and indebted and distressed, so they're not happy. It's not easy to lead unhappy people, and David does. He leads these 600 men and their families, probably has a group of 2,000 people, who are depending upon him, who he leads for several years. So he's learning some very practical skills, and he's learning some heart things. How do, how do I depend on the Lord? And you see that most clearly come out when he has an opportunity to kill Saul, and he doesn't. And he says, I, in God's time and in God's way, I'll become the king, but I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to press my own agenda. So there are things happening in David's heart and in his hands over the course of these 13, 14, 15 years, and they're all really good. And then in 2 Samuel 5 through 2 Kings 2, when David dies, it's fulfillment. It's 33 years of David fulfilling his calling, reigning as king of Israel in Jerusalem, this new capital city that he establishes. And in between preparation and fulfillment, we have this seven and a half year time in Hebron that doesn't get a lot of attention. But seven and a half years is kind of a long time. Let me think back to seven and a half years ago. Was that July of... 2010 or something. It's, it's a long time ago. Think of all the things that have happened in your life during that span of time. That's, and, and what is it? It's not necessarily preparation because he is the king, but it's not necessarily fulfillment because he's not the king of all Israel. He's the king of Judah, which isn't nothing, but it's one out of 12 tribes. It's not everything. It's a, Is it a transition from preparation to fulfillment? It could, maybe. I think that's a good way of looking at it. That's a positive. But sometimes when you're in the middle of it, it maybe feels maybe more glass half empty than half full, and it can feel like you're in a holding pattern. I wonder for David how many times when he was in the wilderness, he's sleeping in this cave and got his head on a rock or whatever, and he's thinking and dreaming and saying to himself, when Saul's gone, this will all go away. All of this will be better. I wonder how many times he said that to the guys he was leading. Like, just hang in there with me. We're not going to kill him. We're not going to do anything aggressive. We're going to wait on the Lord. And once Saul's dead, whatever that, however God takes care of that, once God removes Saul, however he does that, it's, it's fine. He's going to move me into the, to this rightful role as king. And all of this will, will go away. I, I don't know. If it was me, I would have said that a lot. I would have been hanging my hat on Saul being removed. And David was very faithful to the Lord during that period. Again, he never took matters into his own hands. He wasn't aggressive at all all, in terms of pursuing his own agenda. And then Saul is removed, and David says to God, shall I go up? Yes, where? To Hebron. And he goes. And I don't know how much time passes from when David enters Hebron, but he is anointed king. By the men, and they say, "You are going to, you are our king. You're the king of this whole tribe of Judah, which again is not nothing." And I wonder for David if he's thinking, "Okay, what's next?" And then year two passes. What's next? And then year four passes. What's next? And then year six passes. And he's, "What's next?" That first step, which probably was so encouraging and so exciting, after seven and a half years, can feel a bit like you've run into a roadblock. Maybe God moved the goalpost a little bit. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. You've gotten geared up for something, then you start moving in the direction, you find out that the finish line is farther away than you had first either been taught and discouraged. we don't see a lot about David during this seven and a half years. There's, we don't know what Psalms were written during that time. We don't have a lot of insight from Second Samuel into what's going on in his heart. I just, I'm curious. Now, I wonder if any of you today feel like you're in one of those Hebron situations. You feel like maybe you're beyond the state of preparing for something, but you're not fully living out whatever that something is. A lot of us, uh, subconsciously or unintentionally, we we create mile markers. And we have something in our mind of what our life is going to look like when we hit that mark. That's why people have a midlife crisis, they get to whatever that age is in their mind 40 or 45 or 50, whatever that. When I'm over here, and I'm thinking about 40, and for them that feels like forever away, there's a picture of what it's going to be like. And then you get there, and it's like, oh, this isn't it. This isn't it at all. That's why a large number of divorces happen between year 18 and 19. You start going, whoa, this, what? I thought that we would be fill in the blank. This isn't my picture of what marriage would be. We start looking for a way out. Some people do it when they graduate. High school, when they graduate college, or when they, when I get to some certain place in my career, when we have kids, when my kids graduate, whatever those things are, it's, it's easy for us to have mile markers and then expectations around what our life looks like when we hit those. And then when it doesn't, and how often does it, it's easy to get disappointed and to get disillusioned. That's That can be Hebron. That's the glass half-empty. I'm not necessarily a, in the, a young person. Uh, in, hear that not just chronologically, but in terms of preparing. But I'm definitely not living the abundant life that I feel like the Lord promised, either very specifically or just this general statement from of Jesus from John 10.10. 10. And it's easy to say, I'm not quite sure why I'm doing this anymore. God, I feel like you moved the goalpost on me. Things aren't working out the way I thought. I wonder if you feel that way this morning. If so, I would encourage you with this. I think the way to be fruitful in Hebron is, it's, uh, I've told you all this before, a quote from Jim Elliott, one of my favorite missionary quotes, wherever you are, be all there. Wherever you are, be all there. When you're in Hebron, what does it look like for you to be fully committed to that place? We don't know what David did. The assumption based on his track record that he did rule and reign in that place, and I think that's why his influence increased. Is because people saw him ruling Judah well, and they're like, "I want to be on his team. He's doing a better job than Ishbosheth, and so I, I'm going to align myself with him." And I, I think that's an accurate assumption to make, based on the fact that the other tribes all do coalesce under his leadership. So, what would it look like for you? ...to be fully in your Hebron. It may not be... It's not your Jerusalem. That's the capital city that David will found... ...when he fully is living as the king of everything... ...of of all Israel. What does it look like for you in your Hebron to be fully there? What does it look like for you in that place to say... ...God, how can you use these circumstances in Hebron... ...to make me more like Jesus... God, how can you use these circumstances while I'm in Hebron to further prepare me for the good works that you've created in advance for me to do? Is there more that I need? Just give those things to me. David got better as a leader. He learned things when he led 2,000 people, and he learned more things when he led a whole tribe. So God, what does it look like for you to use Hebron, not as a holding tank where I'm getting frustrated and disillusioned, but as a place where I can fully invest and at the same time, I'm going to pray for you to move me out. Read the Psalms. How many times David says, Oh Lord, I cry out to you for deliverance. It's more than once. That theme runs throughout his Psalms where he's saying to his men, he's saying we're not going to do anything to pursue our agenda. And what he's saying to God is you got to do something about this. It's a both and. I'm going to be fully present in Hebron. I'm going to give everything I have in this circumstance and to these people. And then when I'm alone with God, I'm going to say, you got to get me out of here. Move pursue my own agenda. I'm not going to get in the car and drive away. I'm going to be fully here until you move me and I'm asking you to move me. If you're in Hebron this morning and it's a bit of a glass half empty for you. You're getting weary of what what maybe initially felt like a great first step is now feeling like a cul-de-sac. And then you're just going around and around and around. I would encourage you with David. There's just a line. It's verse 11. That's it. David, the time that David reigned in Hebron was seven years and six months. You remain faithful. God always is. And it'll be just a line in your story too. The amount of time that we struggled with infertility was just a year and six months. Or the amount of time I waited on a spouse who's just five years or whatever that it it becomes a footnote not the defining word for your life you may be in hebron it may be you may be uh, seeing it more glass half full which is great but there's two different perspectives on the same thing neither one is better than the other it's january maybe you're excited maybe you made some commitments last year resolutions decisions i'm going to do this That I didn't do last year. I'm going to do this better. I'm going to do this different. I'm going to introduce this into my life. One or two or three things. Hopefully there was some leading from the Lord in that. You didn't just kind of pull something out of the air. You had some sense from God of, hey, I'm going to focus on my marriage this year. I'm going to focus on this with one of my children and this in my job or this personally. Maybe there's some, I hope there is, some area where maybe the Lord's pressing you and you're saying, you know, I'm going to engage in that. For you, I hope Hebron is is it feels like a first step. And in January, it's easy for it to feel like a first step. And we can see Jerusalem's down there. We'll we'll get there, but I'm going to take a step today. What happens for most of us is we're so easily distracted by the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and and our desire for other things that these first steps kind of get choked out. And we look back in February or April or September, and we really haven't grown We haven't invested faithfully in those things over time. We're not seeing any fruit. I want to encourage you, let Hebron be a first step for you and recognize it's going to be a small step. It's just the way the kingdom works. God rarely leads us to take these huge leaps. It's almost always baby steps after baby step, after baby step, after baby step. Jesus pictures it or describes it as a mustard seed. It's the smallest common object that he could point to with people. This is what the rule and reign of God is like. It's like this little seed. You're actually sitting on a mustard seed. You don't know that. That's how inconspicuous they are. You can't even see it. You're sitting on one. I hope it doesn't stain your clothes. I don't think it will. They're so small. You can't feel it. They're inconsequential in so many ways. They're looking. You see it? Did you find it, Riley? Not yet. You can look. They're this small. They're nothing, and look what they turn into. 20 feet tall, 20 foot spread. To think that something that you can't even feel right now becomes that. It's miraculous in some ways. It's just, I mean, it's, all of that is contained in that little bitty seed. I don't get how it all works, but it's true. That Jerusalem for you, it's contained in your Hebron. This little bitty thing, your little small act of obedience on Monday and next Tuesday and February the 18th. Those little acts of obedience over time. God, it's not a great word, but God leverages those or blesses those, if you like that word better. And he produces 30, 60, and 100 times the effort that you put in. That's what this thing does. And so I want to encourage you at the beginning of the year as you're looking, hopefully, with hope towards 2018. And again, hopefully with one or two or three things that the Lord's put in your heart for you to pursue this year, for you to do different this year. I want to encourage you, let that small step, let that mustard seed be a Hebron to you. Look at it from a pot. You're not going to get to Jerusalem by the end of January. That's not how it works. You're not going to get there in a month or in two months. Most likely the things that God is asking of you, they require some changes in behavior that eventually will become habits. And that takes a while to sow those things into our heart. And I don't want you to get discouraged. I don't want you to get distracted. It's so easy for us to fall into both of those traps and to quit and to give up. And we wind up where some people maybe are saying, I'm stuck in Hebron. Others of us, we just stop in Hebron. So this is good enough. This is good enough. I want to encourage you to press on to Jerusalem and recognize it's a step at a time. You're not going to make miles and miles of progress in a week. You're going to make feet and feet of progress in a week as you continue to sow faithfully into the things that the Lord has asked of you. Let's take a couple of minutes and pray. You might want to be like Riley and grab that mustard seed you're sitting on and hold it. You may just want to grab onto that thing and how small it is and inconsequential it feels. And in faith, you may just want to say to the Lord, what's mine? We talked about that prayer last week of of Paul and 2 Thessalonians may God by his power bring to fruition your every act of faith. Those mustard seeds when done in faith are raw material that the Lord will use to advance his purposes in your life and in your community. Without those if nobody's planting seeds there are no trees. Every tree you see came from a seed. And if we're not planting them, there's nothing for God to work with. So let me encourage you in a couple of things as we pray. One, I'm going to give you a a few seconds here, maybe a minute. You may not have had any reflection time heading into this year. You may just have jumped right back in, be flying blind. Take a minute. Take a minute and ask the Lord are there one or two or three things that you would have me press into this year don't restrict that just to your spiritual life give them access to all of your life are there places where you would want me to grow change my behavior so Holy Spirit would you speak to the children and the students and the adults in this room in this 30 to 60 seconds. Show us what you would have us go after in 2018. That's the kind of the, that's the tree. And that's not for today. Again, you may want to grab that mustard seed and say, God, what's what's the step? What's Hebron for me? What's the first step that you would have me take in that direction it may seem a bit roundabout it may not seem to be the most direct path I want to encourage you choose obedience even if it doesn't make a ton of sense God told Joseph through a dream, brothers and your parents are going to bow down to you and the next thing that happens is he's sold into slavery and the next thing that happens is he's forgotten about in jail. Those don't seem like the right steps. So, I want to encourage you again just to grab on in obedience to whatever those mustard seeds are that the Lord would speak to you and then just commit in your own heart this morning. God, I want to do these things. Whatever that is, whatever that seed is, I want to do it in faith. I want to take a small step in faith. God, I'm asking for your grace to do that. I confess I'm easily distracted. I can become discouraged. I can switch into my own strength and do things just by gritting my teeth and doing them in my own power. I don't want to do any of that. God, I want these acts of obedience to be done in the Spirit, to be things that you can use over time to get me to Jerusalem to produce this 30, 60, 100-fold harvest. This morning may be kind of the glass half empty, not necessarily because you're pessimistic. Maybe it's because you're tired. Seven and a half years is a really long time. If that's you this morning, I wonder if you would give us the opportunity to pray with you. Pray for God to encourage you and strengthen you. To stir hope in you, to renew you this morning. you would, as we move back into worship and ministry, pray that you would work in each heart in this room. You know exactly what we need. People who need direction, people who need encouragement, people who need conviction. Would you move in our hearts now in these next couple of moments? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can stand. We'll have ministry teams here up in the front. We'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. But I would say particularly, if you feel Like you're stuck in that Hebron place. Let us pray for God to encourage you. If you have a sense of what maybe God is asking of you for 2018, let us pray that you would do those things in the Spirit.